So good morning. Good to see you all. Um, my name is Alex. For those of you who are new around here, and I have the uh, opportunity and privilege of, of preaching God's Word this morning from Mark 10, 35 to 45. And so um, here at Redemption Church, our, our, our big idea, what we're seeking to accomplish as a body of Christ is to be people who enjoy Jesus. We love one another, right? And that, and that we actually uh, see ourselves as intentionally making disciples here in the city of Seattle, right here in Green Lake. And in order to go about accomplishing those things, we decided to flesh that out or put handlebars on. How are we going to get that accomplished here uh, over the rest of our lives? How are we going to see that done? We're going to be a gospel community of worshiping, serving disciples, another Bible's, on mission. That's what we're doing. And so we're taking six weeks to look at these very, very specific uh, values or commitments here that we have here as a church. And so whether you're a Christian or not this morning, we'll begin by just, let me just ask you a question. When you think of a mature Christian, who actually comes to mind? Who's a mature Christian? What picture do you have comes to your mind? Is it a theologian in a library buried up to his neck in Greek and Hebrew lexicons? Is it a monk in a monastery somewhere far off in Europe? Is it a missionary in a third world country? Is it Billy Graham? Is it your grandmother? Who comes to mind when you think that's, that, that, one's, that one's mature? That's, that's a mature Christian. As surprising as it may be to some, and while all of those people and roles are very much so used by God and are necessary in the world, here's the deal. When Jesus describes mature Christians, he does so by calling attention to the one who is the least of these, the servant in the room. Jesus describes mature Christians, the ones who are really following him, the ones who really get it, are the ones who serve. And so that's what we're looking at this morning. And that's in keeping with everything that's a belonging to really his upside down kingdom. That is, when Jesus enters the world, he did so in such a way that nobody could even recognize the king of the universe because he did it in a way that none of us expected. And this, again, is another demonstration of that reality. And so just like giving, just like being in community, just like praying, just like reading your Bible, just like being on mission and so on, just like all these other things, serving too is a discipline of the Christian faith. It is, it is something that we receive. Uh, we, uh, it comes with the heart that we receive that's renewed by walking with the Lord Jesus. Serving comes with it. It's a whole package deal. So... Um, so when I talk about serving this morning, don't tune it out and think, well, he's probably talking to somebody else, <laughs> which is what we as church people do. Like, oh, yeah, that guy needs to hear this one. Uh, don't go there. Or don't even buy the lie of, well, later on in life, when I have absolutely nothing else to do with my time, then I'll serve. At that point, I'll serve. Here's the deal. That will never happen. That will never happen. In fact, if you start now, the likelihood of you growing into a greater servant, yeah, that, that, that can happen. But the idea of, yeah, once, once I've had all my fun, lived my life for me, and then go, you know what, I'll give the Lord the, like, the last 12 months of my life or something. Sure, that, don't bank on that actually happening. So when we think about serving, think 
right here, right now. And so let's just acknowledge a few temptations that uh, you face, I don't face, because I'm a, I'm a, you know, I'm, you know. But you, here's why. Um, here's temptations we face. I don't serve because I don't think I'll actually experience God in serving. I don't serve because, honestly, I'm above it. I don't serve because serving is inconvenient. That's what the word kind of implies. I don't serve because I think I'll be happier having someone else serve me rather than me serving them. And on and on it goes. Like we, I, I, I know. You're like, man, that sounds just, okay, that does sound like you. Yeah. So, with our time this morning, as with every week, let's look at God's word and what it says about serving. So it says this in Mark 10, 35. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask you. Okay, so you've got to understand who James and John are. They're the guys that Jesus uh, named uh, the sons of thunder. They, uh, they're, they, they're actually the rich kids. Their dad was a successful guy. Uh, and Matthew's gospel tells us that their mom actually put them up to this request. So she's over here almost living vicariously through the, her rowdy, angry children who are now disciples of Jesus. They roll up to Jesus and they say, teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask you, which is fairly bold to walk up to Jesus and ask that of Jesus. It's kind of like Tove or Jude, our kids, they'll pull this kind of thing like, dad, here's the deal. I'm about to ask you for something and you can't say no. Like, well, it's that kind of a moment. So, Look how Jesus responds, Mark 10, 36. He said to them, and how gentle he is. What do you want me to do for you? Not, that's a ridiculous thing to say. Well, what, what would you like me to do for you? And right here, Jesus even begins to tip off what is a servant. How would you like me to serve you? What would you like me to do for you? Redemption. If you knew you had the absolute undivided attention of Jesus and he looked you in the eyes and said, what do you want me to do for you? How would you answer that question? Because how you answer that question reveals so much about what you believe about yourself, about God, and the world he's made. What do you want me to do for you? How do you answer that question? So their answer, in fact, is remarkably telling. In fact, it shows us this, that you can actually be in the very physical, face-to-face, flesh-and-bone presence of Jesus. You can be eyeball-to-eyeball with him and still be miles and miles away. This is one thing that we learn over and over again with Jesus and his interactions, not just with the crowds out there or the pilot over there, but rather with those who would claim to be his disciples. He shows you can be really, appear to be very close, but have a heart that's very far. So they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Quite the ask. That's a big one. This is not like, can I, could you get me into the Hawks game this afternoon? That's what I'd like. That's a little lower bar. 
But no, what does he ask? They, they ask, let me sit, at, I want to sit right here. I don't want to just get into heaven. I want to sit on the throne too. Like, wow, that's a big ask. And Jesus has some things to say. It's like, well, all right. He doesn't agree. He doesn't say, all right, you can do it. Rather, what does he say? You do not know what you're asking for. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized? And so he starts to give them a very stern rebuke. And as followers of Christ, we need to remember that Jesus is not some pushover slouch or some kind of Santa Claus cosmic figure in the sky that just gives us whatever you want or checks in once a year. But rather, for those who would come after Jesus, he has no problem giving us a stern rebuke from time to time. It's not that he's mean. It's not that he's a bully. It's just the fact that he's our Lord, and we miss it oftentimes. And so he has no problem going, I'm going to actually, for your own good and for the glory of God, I'm going to actually say some things that are going to address you, convict you, correct you. So he asked them, are you actually able to drink the cup that I'm going to drink? Like, what in the world, what kind of question about drinking out of a cup? So uh, throughout the Old Testament, here's a few verses. The cup represents the wrath of God in several places. Listen to this, Jeremiah 25, 15. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Take from my hand this cup, the wine of wrath. Or in Isaiah 51, 17. O Jerusalem, you who have drunk uh, from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs, the bowl, the cup of staggering. Or over in Revelation 14, verses 9 and 10, an angel begins to speak and says this. If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or in his hand, he will also drink, listen to this, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger. So Jesus now, the men that want to sit on the throne with him, say, do you you want to actually go through what I'm about to go through? This is the cup that Jesus actually prays about in the Garden of Gethsemane. Let this cup pass from me. What kind of, what is he going to drink? What could be so bad that it's got the Son of God in tears and agony going, Oh, I don't, I do not want to go through this. What could it be? It's this. It would be the wrath of God. So he asks him, are you really going to drink the cup that I drink? Are you really going to be baptized? Can you do this? And they respond to him, yes. (laughs) And this is why he comes back with, you have no idea what you're asking for. Good Friday's going to be hell. Like, you don't want to do this, Right? Yeah, we're able. He says, the cup that I drink, he even tells them, the cup that I drink, you will drink it, all right. And the baptism with which I'm baptized, you will be baptized. Just like, I know how this plays out. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine. To grant is for those for whom it's been prepared. And listen, the twelve over the other ten overheard it. <laughs> and when they heard it, it says they began to be indignant at James and John. That is, the other ten are listening in, going, Are you seriously asking to sit on the throne of God? 
and they began to be indignant. We don't know exactly, it doesn't explicitly say why they're indignant. They could be indignant going, you guys haven't learned anything from Jesus and we've been walking around for three years with him. What are you talking about? Or they're indignant over the fact that James and John were just bold enough to ask them for the things that they wanted too. Well, actually, I was thinking that. Like, beat me to it. I was going to catch him after lunch and ask him the same thing. <laughs> we don't know. But the fact is, is now the disciples, because of pride, because of this overinflated request, now the disciples are now being divided and are angry with one another. This happens regularly in Christian community when pride makes its way in and when there's overinflated egos. Division happens. Discord happens. People become indignant, angry. So this is what Mark is showing us here. And Jesus called them and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, which would be the word pagan, really, uh, the Gentiles, this is the way Jews would have thought of Gentiles. The Gentiles, when they're rulers, when they're in charge, when they're in authority, they lord it over others. And their great ones exercise authority over them. So Jesus says, you know how pagans, when they get power, you know how they do things, right? They love being in power and having authority. And they don't mind ruling over people harshly. They use people. And when they lead, they're only leading through a job title, not with really any real character. And yet, at the same time, it makes perfect sense to the world. Get in charge, climb to the top, push everyone around, and that's fine. <laughs> that's what you're supposed to do. Just don't be a servant. But Jesus' kingdom is totally upside down. So he says, but it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first must be the slave of everyone. So Jesus now tells us, here's how it really works. As when God shows up on the scene, he turns the kingdom completely upside down, and it's like the way up is down, the way forward is backward. The way to greatness is humility. It's not try to take the throne, but be the servant at the door, the busboy washing dishes, the parent changing diapers, the one who is going out of his or her way to lift a burden off of somebody else to make life a little more bearable. Jesus is going, this is what the kingdom actually looks like. It's not going to be this way among my people, among you. Yeah, the Gentiles out there, they can do that all day long. Anybody can shoot for the top and run over people. That's easy. That's called sinful nature. We can all do that. Not so among you. As, as, when it comes to disciples, we go, no, we're not going to clamor for power. But rather we look to, how can I be the servant in the room? It's completely upside down. It's completely upside down. And then he punctuates it with this, Mark 10, 45. For the Son of Man, that would be Jesus, the Son of Man, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. If you want to know the context of the Son of Man, I didn't go read Daniel 7 later today. Um, but you see who the Son of Man is, and he's coming in power and glory and authority and all kingdoms and rulers, and everybody is, is below the Son of Man. That's, that's who Jesus is. And it says, the Son of Man, 
speaking of himself, came not to be served. Which in that picture of Daniel 7, you go, you mean he's not going to be served? The one with the (laughs) the scepter in his hand that rules the universe? Are you serious? No, he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Listen, we value serving here at Redemption Church because it is bound up in the very mission statement of Jesus himself. I didn't come here to be served. I came to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. So to call ourselves Christians, little Christs, divorced from lifestyles that are dedicated to serving others is simply not part of the Christian faith. That is, the Christian faith rightly understood and applied always, 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 listen church, always dead ends in serving. To follow Jesus is to always dead end in the cul-de-sac called serving. And then he punctuates his point about serving by speaking about his cross. The Son of Man came not to be served but to serve. And I came here specifically for this, to give my life as a ransom, as a payment for many. You hear that? When we talk about serving, when Jesus talked about serving, he wasn't willing just to come down and become incarnate, though that was unbelievable, to be part of the Trinity, bypass being an angel, to come all the way down to being a human. Oh, and to be born of a virgin in a barn, ostracized as the poorest of the poor, with no place to lay. Listen to how low Jesus came all the way down. And, and... Not just to teach sermons, but to give his life as a ransom for many, a payment for sin. When Jesus thought about serving, he thought about giving not just his time, but his entire life would be given. What a great God. This is why you're here, son of a A God that would come out of heaven and come down here and do that for you is worth your worship. He's worth your service. He's worth your honor, your praise, your allegiance, your affection, your mind. He's worth every ounce of you. He's worth it. And listen, here's what's great about the gospel. Jesus doesn't say, go lay down your life as a martyr and I might save you. It was the other way. In your stubbornness, in your pride, in your resistance, in your shaking your fist at God, in your, I don't need you, I can do it my own way. In all of that, Jesus goes, I'm gonna come give my life for you on that day. And while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That he saw us in our worst moment, on the, 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 the ugliest moment of your life, that you would be humiliated if anybody ever found out about it. That moment, he sees us in our doubt, in our skepticism, in our atheism. He sees us in all of this. He goes, I'll give my life now. In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That he gave his life as a ransom for many. And you are part of that number. That Jesus loved you enough to give his life away for you. You remember, I mean, you got to hear this every day. Was I really worth the death of the Son of God? <laughs> Nobody in, that right, in their right mind looks at that and goes, kind of, yeah. 
No! <laughs> we look at the cross and go, oh my God, amazing grace. Wow, that you would do that for me. What a servant. What a king. That he would give his life as a, as a ransom for many. I read a story this week about um, one ethicist. After he retired, he went over to Calcutta to visit with uh, Mother Teresa at the, the House of the Dying. And as you know, Mother Teresa's story, she would care for people that are uh, on their way out of life, passing into death. And whether it would be she would be with them for a quarter of an hour or up to two weeks at a time, caring that, they, she, that her mission in life was to hold the hand of the dying and to give them a smiling face of Christ to the dying who had no one else to care for them. That's so this ethicist retires, goes over to Calcutta, meets her the first morning, and she comes out and she walks over. Hey, you're new around here. Um, what can I do for you? <laughs> like, of course, there's Mother Teresa serving. And he says, um, could you pray for me? She's like, well, sure. What, can I, what would you like me to pray for you about? And she, he goes, I just need clarity. I just retired. I'm not sure what I need to do with the rest of my life. And Mother Teresa goes, oh, well, well, no. I won't pray for that. And he's like, you're Mother Teresa. You're supposed to be. <laughs> and she goes, he goes, why not? And she came back with, and he even says, um, why won't you pray for me to have clarity? You obviously have clarity. And her reply was amazing. She goes, Clarity? I've never had a moment of clarity. And she goes on to say, I, I, I didn't reverse engineer my life. I don't know how tomorrow works out. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how my kids turn out. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how it all is. I don't have clarity about everything. Here's what I do know. I can give my life away right now to serving others. I don't know how the story ends with the ethicist. I don't know if he ever was like, great. But I do know that she was communicating something incredibly powerful, that she understood. I don't know how it all ends, but what I am clear about is that I have two eyes and ears and mouth, hands and feet. I'm alive right now, and I can give my life to somebody else. That's the essence of the Christian faith. So if we're going to be a church that sees our city swept up in the power of the gospel, we have to embrace being servants. The gospel itself advances on the shoulders of those who are willing to serve through the power of the Spirit. I mean, even like, you know, the big book Romans in the Bible, you've heard of it. Um, it's a big one. You know how it actually got to Rome? Paul wrote it from jail and gave it to a young lady named Phoebe, and she carried that to Rome. <laughs> you got Romans because a young lady was willing to risk her life to bring the good news to Rome. Thanks, Phoebe. It's, we got the gospel. So if we're going to reach our city, we may as well start at home first. Do you want to serve in kids, men? 
do you want to, can you play an instrument? Do you want to, do you want to help lead in worship? Are you ready to lead a life group? Can you help us set up and tear down? Simple things, but very necessary things. So I'd encourage you today, if God's speaking to you about serving, then jump in. Like, fill out a card at the Connect t- uh, table today. And for those that don't know Jesus, listen, I know all of this sounds completely bonkers. <laughs> right? Like at work tomorrow, for, for the Christian, like if you're with somebody who's not a Christian, and they'll say things like, what a waste of time and money. Like your service, your life to someone else, you've not even seen him face to face. You're doing all this. To which we smile and nod. And go, you're absolutely right. I am a fool for Jesus. I am a fool. I'm in love. Yeah, I'm crazy for him. Yeah, I know, I know. It makes no sense to you. I know. And until you see him for who he is, my life is never going to make any sense to you. I don't value the things you value. I don't think the way you think. This isn't even my home anymore. Like, my citizenship is in heaven. I'm only visiting here for a moment. Like, yeah, nothing I do. My mind, my attention, my affections, my emotions, my life, my service, my giving, my praying, my mission, my, my, the gospel, I believe. None of this is going to make any sense until you see him for who he is. And the only way you can see a little glimpse from time to time of who he is is when I'm walking with him. You see? That's where the world starts to see the good news of the gospel. And so you start thinking about who Jesus is. That Jesus is the one who keeps you up at night from time to time. That Jesus is the one with you in the morning. That Jesus is the one that's with you in your parish as you're walking to Fred Meyer. Like you're not walking down the street alone. You're talking to Jesus, aren't you, church? Like if, you're, if you know him, you know how it is. You're always with him. So yeah, yeah, I will look like a fool. I will give. I will serve. I I will follow him. You bet I'm serving him. I mean, after all, he drank the cup for me. The only right response is a heart and a posture of being a servant. That Jesus would carry the cross for me. That Jesus doesn't quit on me. That Jesus never leaves me. That Jesus was thirsty for me. That Jesus served me with grace and salvation. That Jesus gave me his word, his spirit, his promise, and eternal life. Listen, church, we'll close with this verse. Luke chapter 12, verse 37. Just listen to this. Jesus says, It will go well with those servants whom the master finds awake on his return. Listen, I tell you, he will put on an apron, seat them at a table, and then wait on them. You see, Jesus isn't even done serving us. <laughs> that there's actually coming a day when he returns for us. For those that followed him, he returns and he puts on an apron and he sits you at his table. 
He said, wait right here. We're going to party. What a servant. After all of that, he's still going to serve us there. Are you kidding me? That's the king? You bet. That's the king. And so that's where we get a heart and a posture to want to serve God, one another, our city, our world, is we're infatuated with this servant king, Jesus. So with that being said, if you're not a Christian today and you'd like to become a Christian today, I'd like to invite you to, to, to come talk to me. I'll be around, and I would love to pray with you. In fact, if you want to become a Christian and take your first communion with us, you're welcome to do so. You are welcome to do so. Come pray. We'll, we'll ask Jesus to save you and receive communion with us. And if you are a Christian today, remember that he is delighted in you and that he's calling you to a life of serving, to give your life away, and in losing your life, you find it.